Hi, I'm Ada Yi. And I'm Nick Weiler. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week we invite a scientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week our guest is Kelly Zalikowski, a neuroscience graduate student studying dopamine and the reward system in Carl Dyserath's lab here at Stanford. Thank you for joining us this week, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So, Kelly, we have here the makings of your favorite drink, a ginger Tom Collins. Is that right? That is right. Um, so can you walk us through how you make it? Absolutely. So I'm going to make it in my shaker for you. So first you fill the shaker up with ice. You're going to add two ounces of gin, which is, for those playing at home, an eight-count pour. It's a lot of gin. <laughs> uh Three ounces of, I have here ginger-infused simple syrup, but you can just use regular simple syrup, which is one part sugar, one part water, heat it up until it dissolves. We're going to add the juice from one lemon, which I have to cut in half, and juice. Mm. <laughs> she has all the equipment, <laughs> in case you're wondering. That is a wonderful <laughs> Well, in January of last year, I got my bartending license on the logic that they keep telling me to get transferable skills. (laughs) (laughs) Every graduate student needs to have certain transferable skills. Yeah, they'll never be out of a job. (laughs) So we're going to take that. How long does it take to get a, get a what do you call it, bartending license? So it's 32 hours of class, which um, is either over several weeks in the evenings or just two weekends. Huh. Uh, and then you have to take an exam in which they ask you about um, the components of various cocktails and what sort of... What sort of uh, what sort of alcohol is Tanqueray? What sort of alcohol is Bullet? What sort of they go on like this? What's the difference between a rye and a bourbon? What's the whatever? And then there's a pour test, in which you have to pour any twelve drinks they request in six minutes. Oh wow! Which is quite the thing. <laughs> so um, I busted out some flashcard skills that I hadn't used since undergrad. <laughs> pour it out of the shaker into the glass. Then top it off with club soda. That's an important order distinction. Shaker, then club soda. Really? That's something that you would be <laughs> tested on. <laughs> well, putting the, sh- the club soda in the shaker and then shaking it is <laughs> <Dangerous>. questionable. <laughs> yeah. So tell uh, me what you think. All right. It smells delicious. All right. Cheers. All right, cheers. Oh, it's really delicious. Mm. I actually, I really Someone. enjoy ginger in my, in my drinks. Yeah. I think it's totally worth the trouble to boil the ginger in the simple syrup just to get it. Mm. And when did you learn about this drink? In your class or in your certification? Well, there's a whole family of Collins drinks that I learned about in class. So Collins essentially means um, whatever alcohol you're interested in plus sour mix plus soda water hmm. in a tall in a taller Collins glass. And so there's a bourbon Collins and a vodka Collins and a gin Collins, each with their own... Name so the gin Collins is also called a Tom Collins. Nice. Mm. The ginger that, is just for flair. That's actually fantastic because Collins is actually my middle name, <laughs> <laughs> and I like that kind of drink. So that Nicholas Collins. The Nicholas Collins. Okay. <laughs> you have to make it up. 
All right, Kelly. So uh, you're an expert in dopamine signaling and in the reward system. Um, and so dopamine is one of those things that um, neuroscientists, everybody outside of neuroscience, talks about all the time. But um, maybe it's also pretty much one of the most misunderstood neurotransmitters in the brain. So maybe um, you could give us like a large overview of how we understand the dopamine system at this time. Well, so that's really interesting. So neuroscientists actually have a long history of misunderstanding dopamine in the brain. <laughs> um, the beginnings of sort of modern study on dopamine signaling probably start with a study by Oldson Milner in 1954 in which they were putting stimulating electrodes into a rat's brain and trying to elicit responses and I think accidentally stumbled upon a role of the dopamine system. So they, this, was, this was all the rage at the time, just sticking electrodes yeah. in and seeing what happens. Exactly. This is like the chocolate chip cookie experiment of neuroscience, one of those <laughs> things you're trying to do something else but you came up with something wonderful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so what they discovered is that if you put the stimulating electrode too close to dopamine neurons, a rat will press a lever repeatedly, just thousands and thousands and thousands of times, rather than drink water, rather than eat, rather than take care of its young, until it's just bodily exhausted to keep getting this electrical stimulation. And so for a long time, for you know 40-plus years, neuroscientists thought that dopamine was the pleasure chemical. This must be a pleasurable sensation. And the sort of next big advance in our understanding of dopamine came around 1998. There's a man named Wolfram Schultz who was studying dopamine neurons in macaque monkeys. And in his setup, what he's doing is that he has a macaque monkey sitting in a chair, and the macaque is thirsty. And so thirsty macaques really like juice. <laughs> and what Wolfram was doing was that he would just on a random basis give the monkey a drop of juice, and he's recording from the dopamine neurons in the monkey's brainstem. And what he saw at first was that the dopamine neurons fire more when the monkey got this unexpected drop of juice, which fits pretty well with what Olds and Milner already found, right? If dopamine's the pleasure chemical, then the neurons that release dopamine should fire more when the monkey gets something pleasurable. Right, and the monkey loves juice, so that mm -hmm. makes sense. Exactly. And then he made the experiment a little more complicated. He said, instead of just randomly giving you juice, I'm going to shine a light, and then exactly a second and a half later, you're going to get this drop of juice. So light, second and a half, juice. Light, Second and a half, juice. And the monkey, after doing this a few thousand times, learns very well that after the light, he's going to get a drop of juice. And then something interesting happens. So Wolfram is still recording from the dopamine neurons. And now the dopamine neurons aren't firing for the juice. They're firing for the light. So they're doing something a little bit uh, different from what you would expect based on the Olds and Milner experiment. Now the dopamine neurons fire more for a cue that predicts reward. So does that mean that the light is pleasurable? Um, it might mean that the light is pleasurable, but the... I guess it's hard to say, right? Like I, It's hard to ask the monkeys. Um, yeah, so the, the going interpretation for that actually is that the dopamine neurons are doing something a little more complicated than just cueing or just encoding reward. Instead, what the dopamine neurons are doing is encoding something called reward prediction error. So what this means is that you're cruising along and you're not anticipating anything, and then you see this light, and suddenly you have a cue that predicts reward. You have this positive reward prediction error. The other experiment that uh, Wolfram did that sort of confirmed this or made people more strongly believe this hypothesis was that after he's done this to this monkey a couple thousand times where you have the light, a second and a half juice, then he does light, a second and a half, no juice, which is just 
harsh for one thing. But <laughs> poor monkeys. <laughs> Not poor, fair. Poor monkeys. And that's exactly what he saw. So when the dopamine neurons are sort of clicking along at a slow rate, the monkey sees the light, pop, 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 pop. And then there's a second and a half. And then when the monkey is supposed to get his juice and doesn't, the dopamine neurons go totally silent. Okay. Huh. So now what you have is a positive dopamine signal when the monkey sees the cue that he's going to get something he wants. And then a negative dopamine signal when he doesn't get it. Which is much more complicated and perhaps more interesting than the original Olds and Milner dopamine equals pleasure hypothesis. Um, And since then, other people have made this even more complicated by showing that some dopamine neurons also encode um, painful stimuli or obnoxious stimuli like a puff to the eye. You know, you go to the eye doctor and they puff you in the eye. So some population of dopamine neurons seem to just encode anything salient or surprising. Hmm. So it's a little bit more about sort of prediction than about what what the stimulus actually feels like. Yeah. So people in uh, artificial intelligence like to call it something like a prediction error signal, and people not in artificial intelligence call it something like a learning signal, uh-huh. which is maybe a little more interpretable. <laughs> um what does that mean for the original Olds and Milner experiments? So the the rats were pressing this lever to get to get some dopamine stimulation. Yeah. So the distinction that a lot of people in the dopamine field are interested in right now is the distinction between is something reinforcing or is something pleasurable. And this is something that addiction neuroscientists are really interested in because, you know, the pleasure that people derive from drugs sort of declines over time, but people are still really motivated to get them. Right, and the cues that predict drugs aren't themselves bringing a lot of pleasure, but boy, they motivate you to go after those drugs. Hmm. And dopamine seems to be really involved in addiction. Right, so we're interested in the difference between rewarding and reinforcing. So something that you may have experienced is that neuroscientists sometimes use to describe reinforcing but maybe not rewarding is something like a tip of the tongue phenomenon. Right, where you're like, you're almost there, you're almost there, you keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, but you never quite get it. That's the reinforcing bit. And then when you finally get it, that's rewarding. Huh. Okay. So it's, it's, you're almost there. And then there's this sort of satisfaction of, of accomplishment. Yeah. Okay. That's really, that's really interesting. On the one hand, the question is, well, what is, what's the, why is it important to distinguish between these different interpretations of what the dopamine signal means? I mean, the rats are pressing the lever when they get dopamine stimulation, we know that a lot of drugs of abuse involve stimulation of the dopamine system. Does it matter if it's pleasure or just reinforcement? Yeah. So one instance in which you might think this distinction is important is that the dopamine system interacts with a lot of other neuromodulatory systems. So the dopamine system and the serotonin system, for example, play off each other. And the dopamine system and the noradrenaline system play off each other. And There are a number of diseases, say schizophrenia, for which we treat with dopamine drugs. But if the actual cause behind the symptoms is not dopamine, but instead, say, the serotonin interaction with the dopamine, then you might not be treating the symptoms in the best way possible, and you might be inducing side effects that are not wholly necessary. And so if we can tease apart these semantic-sounding distinctions in what each of the neuromodulator systems are actually doing in behavior, we might be able to develop more efficacious and specific treatments for when those systems cause problems. Hmm. One question that I have about um, neuromodulator systems. So my, my understanding is that when the, when the dopamine system gets activated by 
um, whatever the stimulus is, it basically is it, – it's a small nucleus in the brainstem, right? That's right. And it sends uh, axons throughout the brain to many different targets. That's also true. And so when that one nucleus – when cells in that one nucleus fire, they can have effects that are very broad-ranging across the brain. Do we do we understand sort of what the different targets are and, and um, what different kinds of effects that those have? We are just beginning to get into that because we're sort of just – breaking the canon that all dopamine neurons are the same. Hmm. And sort of the lead research on this comes from two places as far as I know. One is um, someone you interviewed recently, which is Dr. Rob Malenka here at Stanford, and he has a postdoc in his lab named Stefan Lamel, Mm -hmm. who's been doing really great research showing that dopamine neurons that project to different areas of the brain, so dopamine neurons that project to the amygdala versus dopamine neurons project to prefrontal cortex versus those that project to the nucleus accumbens do different things. They fire at different times. Um, and the other important distinction is that what the is that the dopamine neurons might be talking to all these downstream areas in the same ways, but those downstream areas um, interpret that signal and do different things with it. Mm. Right. So, so you mentioned the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of um, fight and flight response and executive control and some understanding of reward and 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 so on. So, what what do we think the dopamine neurons are doing in these different the dopamine signals are doing in these different areas? I think perhaps the most mysterious signal is the dopamine signal to the amygdala. No one's really quite sure what's going on there, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> The dopamine neurons that project to, in particular, the nucleus accumbens or the bottom part of the striatum seem to be the ones that are most closely tied to uh, reward and addiction. So if you do a lot of cocaine, um, you're going to see changes in the strength of the synapses that are in the nucleus accumbens in almost every drug of abuse that we study. Whereas the neurons, the dopamine cells that project to the prefrontal cortex those seem to be the ones that are um, firing in response to anything salient. Hmm. So whether it's positive, whether it's negative, just so long as it's surprising, your top-down control systems are getting that signal. So what I'm getting from this is that there's, there's very, very diverse effects of dopamine, but why just use one transmitter to modulate all these effects? Is this, is this something, are we coordinating something here? Or? Yeah, well, there's maybe two different answers. So one is that if this is the fundamental approach or avoid, or this is the fundamental learning signal in the brain, there's probably lots of different areas of the brain that are interested in that signal. Uh, The other potential answer to that is that there are multiple different kinds of dopamine receptor. So Hmm. just because um, the dopamine signal is reaching all these different places doesn't mean that the downstream neurons are all hearing the same thing. In fact, if you split the dopamine receptors, there are five types of dopamine receptors, cleverly named D1, D2, D3. Okay. Um, And if you split them, we have D2, D3-like and D1-like receptors. Um, The D1 group, those cells, when they get a dopamine signal, they're more likely to fire an action potential themselves. So they're excited by dopamine. And cells that have the D2 receptors are inhibited by dopamine. So dopamine can actually have opposite effects in the downstream neurons based on which receptors they express. Hmm. And even just within one region of the brain, you can have both types of receptors. Huh. So, yeah, so I like the way that you put that, Ada, which is that it's sort of, there's a signal that um, 
the dopamine neurons care about a particular type of phenomenon in the world, things that are surprising, possibly could lead to a positive result, but that different parts of the brain are then going to have to do different things with that information. I mean, one thing that I think is not, seems not well understood yet in neuroscience is just the role of neuromodulation in general. I mean, a, a huge amount of neuroscience is focused on the excitatory and the inhibitory signaling mm -hmm. that there's computations going on and that neurons are listening. They're getting positive input saying you should fire more and negative input saying you should fire less. And somehow this ends up computing things and coming up with consciousness and art and mathematics and all those things that you like. <laughs> But there are also these neuromodulators that can have very diverse effects. And so it's not just that, you know, one area of the brain is specialized in understanding language. Um, and so it has a particular type of circuit that does that. But there are also, I don't know, how do we, how do we understand the, the, um, the way that evolution has designed these modulators to keep the brain, I don't know, focused on important types of, of environmental stimuli? You know, it's an important question from another angle, which is that a lot of the people who are moving brain science forward from the side of theory, so people who like to explain the brain in terms of math or in terms of electrical circuits or in terms of artificial intelligence, this might be where they're having a lot of their trouble, right, mm -hmm. is that the brain is not just a wet computer, <laughs> <laughs> right? So you have these positive inputs, you have these negative inputs, and those are easy to model with resistors and transistors. But when you're dealing in probabilities, when you're saying this neuromodulator makes this neuron slightly less likely to fire to this input, but it listens more strongly to this other input, you have to really understand that intricately in order to model it in silica, hmm. right? And so I think if we continue to brush aside the role of neuromodulators and say that, oh, well, that's mushy, what's really important is the excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters and whether the neurons are firing more and if we can model it as an electrical circuit, if we brush aside the role of neuromodulators, which deal more in probabilities, then it's going to be, I think, slow going on the AI and computer as a chip side of things. I guess it sounds almost like neuromodulators are making our brain more flexible. So there are more gradations by which these basic circuits can actually work. It's one way to think of it. Um, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, one prominent neuroscientist who sits on my committee and studies the role of dopamine in the striatum just said to me three days ago that the role of dopamine in the striatum is a f mystery. <laughs> so, right? Uh, the experts speak. The experts speak. All right. Well, how about outside the stratum? So you were alluding to earlier the fact that um, sometimes uh, we actually give dopamine as a treatment or dopamine substitutes as a treatment, and there are a lot of side effects, um, which I'm guessing there must be given all the effects that dopamine has. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the diseases? So, for example, Parkinson's disease is one in which uh, dopamine neurons start to die, um, and so um, because uh, actually those neurons are important for initiating movements, and so then people with Parkinson's disease move more slowly and have trouble moving moving at all. So maybe could you tell us about dopamine in this system? Is it any more understood here? Yeah, so that's also really interesting. Dopamine has both a rewarding or reinforcing role and a role in movement or motor activities. And those two camps of researchers perhaps don't talk to each other as much as they should because anyone who's ever gotten out of bed at six in the morning knows that you need motivation in order to initiate movement, mm -hmm. right? And, in fact, we see this in Parkinson's patients. So there are, is 
I'm going to call it one large population of dopamine neurons in the brainstem. And if you start in the middle of the brainstem, um, sort of if you view the brainstem as a tube and you start in the middle of it, those dopamine neurons are the ones that project to ventral stratum and they're really strongly involved in reward. And as you move laterally, that is, you move more and more towards the edge of the brainstem, you get more and more into neurons that are strictly involved in movement and motor activities. And in Parkinson's disease, it's those neurons that are involved in movement that die off first, right? And people with Parkinson's disease don't actually begin to see symptoms until 70 or 80% of those neurons are gone. But as the disease progresses, the death of the dopamine neurons creeps more and more towards the middle of the brainstem, and you see more and more um, emotional and motivational deficits. You see more depression. You see more risk aversion. Um, and so those two concepts are really strongly linked, and we see that, unfortunately, in Parkinson's patients. So you're saying that actually Parkinson's patients, I mean, not only... So when we say brainstem, I guess we haven't really defined that. That's like kind of a very ancient part of the brain. Striatum is a d different part of the brain. But you think that dopamine neurons in both regions and maybe elsewhere are, are both being affected in, in Parkinson's. So the dopamine neurons that live right in the middle of the brainstem are part of something called the ventral tegmental area, which just means the bottom of the tegmental area. And then the motor ones live in something called the substantia nigra, which just means the black stuff. Neuron, I love, I love neuroscientists. <laughs> exactly. Neuroscientists have been good at naming. It's a tradition we have. Um, My favorite was the substantia innominata, I think, which is the unnamed thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This, this is a fun game to play. But, um, yeah, so it's those neurons in the substantia nigra that die off first, and then as you move towards the ventral tegmental area, those neurons are a little more resilient, I suppose, to the disease, but eventually you start to lose those as well. And so that must map onto the symptomology of, of the disorder as well. Yeah, exactly. And it also, there's sort of two treatments we have, two um, pharmacology treatments we have for Parkinson's disease. One is called L-DOPA, and some of our listeners may be familiar with that treatment. But what that treatment is, is it just allows the remaining dopamine neurons to make more dopamine. And that works really well for people for a while, but you might imagine that as you have fewer and fewer dopamine neurons, they just can't crank enough dopamine even if you give them L-DOPA. And so we switch um, to dopamine agonist drugs. And those drugs bypass the original dopamine neurons entirely. And what they do is instead they bind the receptors on the neurons that would normally be getting the dopamine signal. So L-DOPA was, was creating more dopamine as a transmitter. Exactly. As opposed to basically chemicals that will activate what dopamine is supposed to activate. Exactly. And you see a different suite of side effects with the two drugs. So the L-DOPA, where you're getting, um, you're just increasing the existing dopamine signal, you see um, motor side effects. And so people often have, lose control of some of their facial muscles as something called tardive dyskinesia. Dyskinesia just means trouble with movement. Whereas the dopamine agonist drugs, the later acting drugs, have this really strange suite of side effects in which people are much, much more prone to impulsive behaviors. So these people are 20 times more likely than the average person to be a pathological gambler. They run into trouble uh, more often than they should with um, compulsive shopping, with compulsive eating, with compulsive sexual behaviors. And it really is the drug. When they stop taking the drug, they stop exhibiting these strange behaviors. Hmm. And so there you have 
concrete evidence of the interaction between dopamine's role in motor systems and dopamine's role in motivational reward systems. But both those treatments seem so similar. Like, I don't understand, like, why why would, and, you know, are, is one drug just stronger than the other, or is there something about activating what's existing that's that keeps things clamped down a little better? Or Yeah. So you remember we were talking about Wolfram Schultz and his thirsty monkey with the juice, and we said when the monkey gets a signal that he's going to get something he wants, the dopamine neurons fire more. And when the monkey is disappointed, the dopamine neurons go silent. Well, it turns out the downstream of that signal, there are two separate populations listening. And one of them is listening for the increase in firing, and one of them is listening for pauses, dopamine pauses. Hmm. And the dopamine agonist drugs that we give people for Parkinson's specifically act on the neurons that are listening for pauses. And so now what you're getting is this imbalanced signal where dopamine actually is telling the cells that listen for pauses, shh. (laughs) (laughs) And so now the going hypothesis is that these people don't learn about losing as quickly as they learn about winning. Hmm. Right? They don't experience losing as profoundly as they experience winning. And so their learning is imbalanced. And they go chasing after wins without regard for the losses. So they're not getting that negative feedback signal that says, oh, that was bad. I don't like that. Exactly. That's really interesting. And so have we ever thought about, are there other agonists for the other remaining, you know, non-D2 receptors? And do people, you know, are people talking about giving a whole cocktail of them to keep everything balanced? Or is that just really hard? You know, I haven't heard anything like that. It might be because it's really hard and it might be because... That causes some other sweet side effects <laughs> that I'm not aware of. It's just never made it out of clinical sure, trials. Sure, sure. Yeah. Interesting. 